don't know about you, but I'm not really inspired by the word love. Maybe it's because it's so profoundly overused <laughs> in every context. I'm not just talking about like Hollywood meet cutes and, you know, Disney fairy tale bullshit. I mean, it's also extremely overused in religious contexts and just in society in general, you know. It just brings up a lot of should. Like, we should be loving toward each other. We should be nice. We should be sweet and caring. So maybe it's perfect that we're ending season one by talking about a word that we need to unknow in order to come at it freshly from a new perspective. Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis is a public theologian, the first black or female senior minister at the Progressive Multicultural Collegiate Church in Manhattan, which dates back to 1628. And she is famous for championing not just the word love, but the radical inclusivity that it represents. She is famous for saying love, period. That's the entirety of everything that the Christian religion could be summarized as. I don't know that all of Christianity has gotten that memo, but I love how Jackie describes that. But we sat down to have a conversation about her new book, Fierce Love, which is scheduled to come out in November. The tagline reads, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. That's actually what got me hooked. That's why I wanted to have Reverend Jackie on the show on Unknowing, because there's something about the way that she describes love that involves a whole lot of falling apart first and being willing to fall apart in yourself and confront the cracks, the edges, the vulnerability in yourself and then meet and greet that in others too. Van Jones describes the book as a powerful antidote to the tribalism that is wrecking our country and poisoning our souls. Fierce love is a welcome moral north star for readers everywhere. The parts that really inspired me, and you'll hear this in our conversation, were the parts where Jackie got really real. And it's kind of unusual for spiritual teachers to be willing to be that transparent, that honest. I mean, like, real honest. So much of our conversation wound up centering around the theme of how the places of rupture are the places of emergence, how the places that are cracking open in us are actually the places where there is new birth and new life coming through. If you are uncomfortable with descriptions or conversations around female anatomy, this is your fair warning that this conversation may not be for you. I gave you fair warning. You can't say I didn't warn you. Um, last production note, uh, Jackie and I got so caught up in our conversation that we neither one of us actually realized that her microphone wasn't actually turned on. So it wound up recording through her teeny tiny little Apple earphones. So there's there's some funky sounds going on in the mix. It's almost perfect that we're ending season one of Unknowing with like a not perfectly produced episode. Maybe that will um, inspire you to donate or become a patron so that we can up the ante on our production over here. But even with all the sound issues, I hope that you'll still enjoy this conversation that we had together. So let's dive right in to our final episode of season one of Unknowing with Dr. Reverend Jackie Lewis. Reverend Jackie Lewis, I am so excited to have you on the show, and you are the season finale guest for season one, and I am so pumped about that. I have so many questions that I'm dying to dig into, but before we even begin, I just want to say, the first time I met you, there was a conference at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and it was like being in embraced by a hurricane of goodness, like the way that you carry your energy. It was just so much love, so much light, so much energy, so much clarity, so much creativity, but so much power. And I just was, a, I mean, a diehard fan from that moment on. So thank you so much for being on my show today. Were you made that time at CAC, I'm going to say, reverential, right? It was so nice to be there with Richard as he kicked off his Universal Christ book, but you know, I'm in a new space and a new town and a new everything. And you were such a good hostess and such a good producer. So thank you also for bringing the love. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Okay. So I usually like to begin these conversations by asking about the map 
that you were handed growing up? What, what were the parameters, the landmarks that you were given when you were growing up? The map that was handed to you that set you off in an initial direction on the journey of your life? That is such a good question. I think I'm going to have to steal that question, but that's mm-hmm. great. I often talk about inheriting religion from my parents or inheriting, I think, the map from my parents. You know, I'm a person who, who has a couple of degrees in theology and a PhD in psychology. And all of that stuff, Brie, that enters our world, enters our psyche, our mind, that's from what you read, from what you study, your experiences, you know that the first map is so formative. And that map for my parents was love your siblings because you're the big sister and you should take care of them. Love God with everything you have because the Bible says so. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if you wondered what that meant, they didn't so much go to the Good Samaritan story in the Christian scriptures, but they went to the Ten Commandments. Like, this is it. This is why we do it. And mommy threw in, and don't be lying ever, ever, never. <laughs> what does it mean to bear fault? With That's what it means. Do not lie ever. Tell the truth. Your, your word is bond. So there was a really strong um, religious ethical map that came from them. And some stuff in that was repressive. I, I don't, they didn't mean it to be, but they were super obsessed with whether I would be a virgin when I got married. <laughs> it's like, we're yep. not, we're not going to have sex before we get married. Right. So right. sorry, readers, but listeners, two weeks before I got married to my fiance, I did, but there was a lot of, you know, purity code in there yeah, and goodness. What does it mean to be good? That be good is hugely a part of my personality still. It really is. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up purity culture because we're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. As I was reading your book, I was like, ooh, this is going to be juicy. So, But before we get there, before we jump ahead, I want to ask you about points of departure. Because often what happens is, you know, we receive these maps, but there's usually a moment or a rupture or an experience that begins to tear us out of the parameters that were handed. The sense of like, oh, it's only this two by two plot of land and this is all there is. All of a sudden there's something that happens that breaks us out of that. You know, as I was reading your book, several moments like that came up, but I I wanted to hear from you. What do you consider to be maybe the earliest moment that you remember when you had to break out of that, that first initial map, or maybe when there was a collision that happened with the reality of the world outside? Oh boy. Yes. I think in that first map, there was a sense that if I were good, the world would be good back, that that was the contract. If you were nice girl, honored your parents, taught Sunday school, did your homework, got good grades, like all of that stuff would equal God watching out for you and the universe watching out for you and you just being all good, all good. And when I'm in kindergarten, my happy, well-adjusted little life, little sister at home, two parents together, great neighborhood, lots of white people, no black people but me, but we were all good. Uh, this little girl named Lisa moves to town and she definitely crashes. It's a crash where she's little, like I'm little, but she's mean. And she calls me the N-word and tells me that I get chocolate milk from my mother's tits. And neither one of those things were things I'd heard. Milk comes out of tits? What? And, that was, and I'm the N-word. It was just so hurtful and shocking and bubble bursting in a way. Yeah. And so my mom, you know, told me that racism is silly. Of course it's silly that white people think they're better than black people. My dad demanded an apology, reparations, uh, before we knew that word and got it from her dad to him, her to me. But it went in my theological space too. I prayed that no matter what someone looks like, they would feel loved. So there was a beginning of something that also so there was a crash and a turn, right? I'm going to go turn to the left just for fun, right? A turn to the left where I began to imagine then that I might have something to do with making it better. And then Dr. King is killed when I'm 
eight, almost nine. And that's another kind of crash. Good people get killed? What? You're doing God's job and you get killed? Just, I, it was shocking. And that, you know, the four little girls that killed, get killed. I mean, all of that whole thing is a rupture, um, a tearing, and a, a, a path setting. I definitely know at eight that I'm supposed to pick up King's Mantle and work for racial healing. I have goosebumps as you're talking. And that, that moment, as I read it in your book, had the same effect. Because it, the experience that you later talk about, about the midwifery of moments of rupture. And I, I think you'll appreciate this, Jackie. And I might as well air this to, to you know all my listeners. But I wrote a piece in the latest... CAC wanting journal. And I wanted to call it, <laughs> I almost got away with it. <laughs> I wanted to call it the crack as the sacred vaginal site of emergence and creativity. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> I was like trying to work in how to talk about like, hey, we need to embrace cracks and ruptures in our lives mm -hmm. as the vaginal site of emergence of new life. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? And yes, I was I just did. like, I got to... Oh, yeah. Bring this together. Anyway, that moment, as I was reading this moment in your life and how it was a, the conspiring nature of what was happening historically and how it ruptured open your heart to the work that you were called to, it was really incredible to read. And, you know, in your book, you really kind of launch into emphasizing how critical self-love is. And I want to begin here in talking about your book because it's one of those things that I feel like everybody glosses over and it feels a little bit like Buddha beads in Tulum to be like, love yourself. Um, With the incense. I mean, I like incense, right? but yeah. <laughs> I want you to share how you describe this because it's tied to that moment yeah. when that little girl was vocalizing racism and how loving ourselves is connected to the work of justice, because it's impossible, as you write, to hope to live a life of moral courage, let alone kindness, let alone love, if we don't do this step first. So talk to us about beginning with that self-love. Oh, thank you, Brie. Yeah, I mean, you and I know it is just so, love God with everything you have, I shouted, love your neighbor is in the next lowest register, and then love yourself. You know, like, love yourself. Uh, <laughs> why are you like, narcissism, self-absorption, you know, and how many, how many women do you know that really have a narcissistic personality disorder? Maybe three. I mean, you know, we don't get taught to love ourselves. Nobody, what does that mean? Who says it? Nobody emphasizes it. And it's almost like it's tossed in there, but in fact, it's not. I mean, if we're really trying to study Rabbi Jesus, it isn't tossed in. He's pulling Deuteronomy and Leviticus into, you know, he's a rabbi, so he's doing midrash on those texts. And I think as important as what Jesus says, all the world's major religions, right? Don't withhold from someone that which you need for yourself. One tradition says don't break anyone's heart, right? And so there's a sense that, right, isn't that great? But there is a sense, even, even as I'm talking, I want to say, don't forget, don't break anyone's heart. Don't break your heart. Don't break your heart. Because love neighbor, love self is connected by an equal sign in the Greek, os. It's exactly the same. Not by the way, but exactly the same command. So Jesus puts, uh, for the Christian context, you people got to love yourself. I said so. And I'm clear, I'm so clear that what's happened is actually we're obeying Jesus we're loving each other as we love ourselves, and we don't love ourselves. So we're loving each other in a crappy way. Like shit. Like shit. We yes. don't know. Like, yes. oh, I don't love myself. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I didn't make the grade. I, nobody loves me. I don't have the, the right purse. What? <laughs> I have friends who cry because they don't have the right purse. I mean, all the shallow, culturally conscribed, what it is to be an okay human being didn't happen. Did, didn't happen. We weren't held when we were little people. We weren't loved well when we were little people because we were raised by people who didn't know how to love themselves, right? So there's this whole epidemic of just, I'm not parent bashing. I'm just saying the way we demand things from ourselves and therefore from each other 
perfection, no vulnerability, fake, false, persona, patina of I'm okay. And if you fall in love with a fake you, you're not in love with you. So Ubuntu is the other piece of this for me. Um, this Zulu, I've been practicing my Zulu <laughs> to, be able, to be able to say, I think, to be able to say, Ubuntu, Ngabuntu, Ngabantu, kind of. A person is a person through other people. A person is a person through other people. That I can see you and acknowledge you, Salbona, feeds your existence. And again, see how it takes two, like there's a relationship. There's no single human thriving and surviving. So that means each of us and our wellness, our wholeness, our love, our confidence is essential to the transformation of the neighbor, the love of the neighbor and of the world. If without it, there's a big hole in, in that formula. And how, how can we do it? We can't do it unless we start with an unconditional, non-possessive delight in ourselves. That kind of regard for oneself like you said, we're not taught to do that, especially not, I'll say, I'll speak for myself, growing up in a, in a Christian conservative <laughs> environment, we're not taught to look at ourselves with that gaze of love, which is such a shame, you know, but that kind of um, performative perfectionism yes. that comes from that, it's like a natural byproduct of not being taught that loving, accepting regard. And I got to tell you, Jackie, I want to tell you the moment that I really got hooked in your book. Can I tell Please you? Please tell me. Please tell it me. Was, it was the way that you wrote about your divorce from your first husband, oh my God. Paul. <laughs> right. And uh, it was the raw anguish of it, like the searing, cutting, crazy, making pain of it. And the reason I appreciate this is because of what you just mentioned about how so much of that performative perfectionism is actually what I have experienced in a lot of these spiritual spaces where it feels like teachers or preachers or, you know, people who are in the public eye are in the business of hiding these kinds of human experiences. So the way that you so vulnerably went into that raw space to the point of talking about the questioning of your own life, the value of your own life, I mean, like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that. It gets me riled up because this stage of life that I'm in, but also just life in general, is really freaking hard. It is hard. And, yeah. you know, when I read that, it was this witnessing of almost like unknowing what a teacher-preacher person is not supposed to talk about, feel, share, or be honest about. That we all have these moments of searing pain where everything falls apart of what we thought we knew about our lives. So... Yeah, share about that moment and like, you know, what that break was and breakthrough was in that moment of your life. Thank you for asking, Bree. And you know, the other day I was reading the audiobook and I was like, why did you write all this truth about yourself? Oh my God. <laughs> what were you what this? kind of crack were you on? What? <laughs> oh, my God. So good. oh my God. Okay, it's on. <laughs> um I was so in love with him. I was so in love with Paul. I just, I just was, and we mm. were having this beautiful drive uh, on the way to a wedding across the QEW, and we had this car accident that I now understand was sort of the beginning of the end of that marriage. You know, it was so hard. It was so hard. Talk about hard things. Like we tumbled in space. We were flipping in the air, glass and gravel in our hair and face. And by the time we got through tumbling and landed on our tires, and were not helped really by parents close enough. And, and a stranger helps us. People are going to love that story. A stranger really helps us. But there's something that breaks just a little bit in us, like a little bit of um, my fault for myself, because I'm me. I'm, I'm, I'm in the map of be good. Right? I did this. I was driving. I almost killed. You know, how, how, could I, how could my ego really take the, the failure in that? And, and Paul, who... We were both 22, so we didn't know what was going on in our world. Also, the brokenness of the pressure of being a biracial couple, the parents don't love it. All those things were sort of in the, in the mix. And we went to therapy for eight years, pretty much, right? Like the whole marriage. 
but for sure the six year period of time with this person looking down on us from this chair, like he doesn't love me anymore. Like he he it's he falls out of love with me. Oh my god. Now goody two shoes, you know, perfect Jackie with one love partner and like the parents had some I told you so feelings and I just felt so devastated that I failed. Just couldn't believe it. As, it. as I say it to you, I just couldn't believe it. And therefore, I kept pursuing him to put it back together. Yeah, I will put this back together because I can also because I'm good. I'm going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We'll fix it. And Jen induced, you know, phone calls. I love you. 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 And he's like, okay, girl, I'm coming to visit and we'll see. And then he didn't even come. Like he didn't get on the plane. It was like a divorce all over again, like a pounding of your, of your soul. And I was listening to him talk to me, and I, I had such a headache. I get the Tylenol box. And I know you can take three. Like, you can take three. I know you can take three Tylenol. I, I'm starting with three. And then I think, I'm just going to take some more of these. Hmm. And I, I, I don't think I wanted to die, but I really wanted to punish him. I wanted to kill the power that the failure had over me. Mm. I, I didn't want to be connected to it anymore. And I took those pills. And as I took them, there was this voice inside. God or my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Might have just been mommy. <laughs> it, it could have been dad because I had some cousin. It's like, are you really, like, you know, really? Are you really going to let this boy be the reason your mama got to get on a plane and come out here and find your ass in a morgue? Yeah. I was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) Get up off the phone, call the emergency room, and grow the fuck up. That's exactly what the boys were saying. God probably doesn't talk exactly like that, but. It was like that. It was just like that. And I I was like, I got to go. I got to go. So I got a phone. I called the ambulance and they, you know, pick you up and they take you and you have to drink some crazy stuff because you took some crazy stuff. And the next morning I'm like, I need a therapist. And I find one. They give me one. I go to the therapist and I'm like, he's like, why are you here? I'm like, well, I took some Tylenol. He said, did you want to die? I'm like, no, I did not want to die. But I wanted to punish him. And then I realized since he didn't get on the plane, he might not really give a shit about this. Yeah. So what am I going to do? I want to be well. And it was the beginning. That was the beginning of the road that leads me to whatever you described up top, the hurricane of love and whatever. Yes. If I hadn't had that moment, I'm not saying people take time. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like the place where you finally just say, I don't have it. I just don't have it. And you're not pretending. That is the place where God, holy, love, Buddha, the, the world love can get into the crack of you and mm. start healing you because you stop pretending like you don't have a crack because you have a crack. And the right. crack is where the light is. The, the broken place is where the muscle grows. You, you work that muscle out and you are stronger than ever because you admit that your sinews are stretched or your JJ is open, hurting, cast right. open, giving birth, <laughs> whatever. I'm trying to put That's your right. metaphor right. Like it, it's, yes. it's you got to tell the truth about that if you want to get well. And that's exactly why that moment hooked me because I was like, she's not going to bullshit through this book. It was your willingness to be raw about that moment where the veneer cracked, where it all broke open in you. That place of like, I thought I was in a I was in a contract with the universe that if I was good, good things were gonna happen. And here now this shit goes down. That moment kind of put you on this path, as you said, to discovering how to love yourself that then moved you into a place of wanting to be a healing force of love. But I want to talk about another critical ingredient that kind of ties into this pivoting away from the perfectionism and purity culture. Which was, this was the second moment that I was like, oh, hell yes. (laughs) In reading the book, I was like, I am so grateful for your honesty. Okay, so it was when you talked about a man that you met 
named Jonathan. Mm, Jonathan. And he was this uncomplicated experience of of love that you had that was just so hot, so clear, so strong, so tender. And you write about how this uncomplicated experience helped you unknow everything that you had been taught to shame about yourself as a woman sexually in Christianity. You say this. Our night together began a journey from a place I needed to leave to a place I needed to go, to developing my own ethical code for how I would be in the world. Yes. And I have to just transparently say, Jackie, the reason why I was like cheering like full on with a lot of very colorful language was because I had an experience like that in this past year in which it's exactly as you described, a lover who rewired something in Mm. me and helped to bring me more fully into my own body and wound up inspiring a whole lot of creative energy too. So I want to ask about the work of coming home to our bodies, especially Mm. those of us who grew up in purity culture. Mm -hmm. And what is the work of embodiment? What does that mean to you in this moment? There's so much around sexuality in our culture that's just fucked up. I mean, totally. it's It's just, I mean, I'm not really trying to say I mean, the idea of cleaving to another person, the idea of getting vulnerable and naked and making love with someone, giving yourself to someone, letting someone give themselves to you, you know, it's not pretty. You don't want to look in the mirror while that's happening, you know, necessarily. But it's, you know, it's, you know, it's beautiful and vulnerable. And, and there's so much sexualized, so much objectified, so much... Mm-hmm. Um, commodified about that that same experience there's so many of us who have encountered sexual abuse along the way and of course that's in my story too and so then your your body is both like um, male gaze in the media or woman gaze in the media and how do you look and whatever whatever so that's that and then there's like your butt you should only have sex if you're making a baby what that's that and there's this special double standard about what women should do and what men should do. So there's that, all of that mm-hmm. is in the, in the mix. And how complicated is it to know fully how to be a sexual, a sexual human being that loves themselves well and has good, you know, good, appropriately porous boundaries to allow another whole loving human being to come into that space. Right? Where's the book on that? Okay. The joy of sex, my body, myself. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, to put the religious coalition for reproductive choice, I was on the board in DC for a long time. And this idea of just even just talking about sex with God, stop pretending like Psalm of Song of Solomon isn't a book about sex. It is like right. get come on. So I'm, I'm I'm complicating this to say it's super not easy, clean, straightforward. How to hold our religiosity and our sexuality because this is not something that the church has given us to, to do. I think other religions do better than we do, but if we don't come home to our bodies, we don't recognize when we're being abused. If we don't teach girls that sex is fantastic, should be had in the context of fill in the blank, whatever your ethical code is, then they're they're not free to enter into it. If we pretend that we don't have sexual desires, we're creating another facade. And all of this causes us to be impinged by the way we touch our own children, to be impinged with the way we think about our our lovers, and most importantly, to have this, I'm just going to say it the way I feel it, Brie, like a feeling of nastiness about ourselves. Yeah. Like I have, yeah. I have little, I have girlfriends whose dads might have said something like, get your nasty panties out of the bathroom, you know, or the message that the female body is not clean, not good, oh, yeah. not holy, right? So all of that is in the mix, making us awkward, handicapping us, crippling us. From the delight, the goodness, the joy that our bodies are designed to have. To be separate from our sexual self is to be separate from a part of ourself that is so animal, human, straightforward. It makes us absolutely unreal Mm. and unwell. Yeah, unreal. I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but it's like, we're not real. No, and this is the part that... (sighs) We're going to come back to the trajectory of your journey, but you talked about 
almost like having to unknow belief systems in your book. And, you know, it's impossible for me to not be honest about how much things have shifted for me personally. You know, obviously, as I mentioned, Christianity shaped me growing up, left an indelible mark on me. But even when I first encountered mysticism and contemplation several years ago, like maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was like, okay, now this is a version of all this stuff that I can be compatible with. Right. But even those, even those have become maps that I've fallen through in the last couple of years, like a scaffolding that came off. And underneath all that scaffolding was a bunch of wild Gaudi curves uh, of unknowing instead of straight lines of belief systems, right? I love that. So mm-hmm. what I'm talking about is not a rejection of religion, but a falling through into something bigger, wider, more expansive. And Jackie, I can't help but reflect here, like how how baffling it is that Christianity, a religion that's based on incarnation, has kind of missed the memo on that. <laughs> like on, on what you just said, on not being real, right. on not being human, on not embracing our human experience. And I think that's why that moment with Jonathan, the way you described it was so powerful. As a woman, it was like this sense of like, Fuck yeah. Like, thank you for talking about how much we need to come home to ourselves. But Wait, you said that. No, let me let you finish that. But No, no, uh, I was just going to say, talk to us about this element of what you're noticing in religious landscapes about the necessary work of coming home to our bodies. Because this planetary body desperately needs embodied people. You know, our society desperately needs embodied yes. people. So you know, religion isn't working for us in the way that it once did. And what are your thoughts on all of that, Jackie? Like, what are you noticing? I'm noticing that the way we are afraid, the way we are stressed, the way we are um, under duress is regressing us. Maybe, maybe that's understandable psychologically, but it's everywhere, right? It's like, we're going to decide to pass laws about women's bodies and what they decide to do. And we're going to put a bounty out that someone can just tell on you and get $10,000. We're going to stack the court to make sure that we can be in charge of the freedoms that we've, as a nation, finally fought for. So it isn't just sex, right? It is, mm. it is what kind of books we can read, whether we can talk about critical race theory, you know, what does it mean to be successful? Who deserves to be bailed out from COVID and who doesn't? Mm-hmm. All of that. Why are we so freaked out? Why do we care so much about non-binary people's process? What? Why are we so... We're, so we are once again in a time where our fear of all that is changing around us the feeling of catastrophe, the feeling of impending you know, doom for some people, right? Our, our way of life is crashing away. I think that makes people regress, period. Mm-hmm. And it would be so beautiful, Brie, if we were regressing past the crazy ways we created religion. Like, let's, yeah. let's regress. Like, let's go all the way back. <laughs> okay, let's go all the way back. We're going to go back. We might as well just, let's take, just it right, take it all the way back. Take it all the way back. That would be beautiful. But nope, that's not what we've done. <laughs> We've gone to the 1950s, okay, or something. And the semi-good old days, they're not good for me or you, but they were good for some people. And Anita Bryant and Orange Juice and Keep Your Panties On and everybody, you know, we've just regressed to this place where it feels manageable to white men in power. And so therefore, Victorian purity codes, all the girls, you know, all the things, all the things, I think, that are the same thing manifesting in different pots. Well, I want to say to the listener, the reason I told my business in this book, because that was a hot story about Jonathan, mm-hmm. is I was not okay. Like, what I inherited, I mean, my, my breast wouldn't grow. I mean, I, my body, I, my sister got her period two years before I got mine. My body was freaking out by all the pressure to be a good girl in the context where everybody's not good. Mm-hmm. And I'm really wanting to say, therefore, we worry about our, our breast size and our butt size and our waistlines. And we worry about our skin and we worry about our hair color. And we all these things that are all tied up into what culture thinks sexual 
beings should be and what especially they think women should be. And how are we going to be raising healthy girls and boys if we're not healthy? How are we going to be healthy aunties and uncles or healthy co-workers or healthy leaders, healthy teachers, if we're not healthy? And it's not healthy to have all of that stuff repressing the real you. Yeah. Do you follow Alok? Do you know Alok? Uh-uh. Uh, this is this um, amazing Indian that I had a conversation with yesterday, who is a non-gender conforming, wonderful artist, activist. And one of the things he, they were saying to me yesterday in a conversation was, people get so obsessed with their physical appearance, but what they mm. really want to know is how much they love themselves. And I was like, dude, that is right. You can feel mm. Alok has like mm. unleashed mm. the love of themselves on themselves. I am going to pursue love. I'm going to pursue passion, not sex, just sex, but all the love. I'm going to love on myself and love on my community. And because I love myself, you fear me because I love myself to be fully me. That's the revolution, Brie. You and I and all the people loving ourselves enough, revolutionary, fierce love, enough that we are open to each other and everybody's junk. Because everybody got some. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, the experience of reading those two moments felt like the one-two punch or the the one-two contraction of the birth of you and your calling, right? There was the moment where you fell apart from divorce and the moment of this beautiful encounter, loving encounter, that began to initiate you into bodiliness and yes. kind of like a recovery of your inherent goodness. That's beautiful. So That's right. Walk us through, give us a drive-by of the events that then led you to become Reverend Jackie Lewis, that we, the force of nature that you are. <laughs> it is that that seed was planted so young in me. Like I felt, I fell in love with God when I was like seven, eight years, eight years old. And I took the Eucharist, you know, the, the communion, people call it that, but really it's a Shabbat meal, <laughs> turned to Christian, uh, at church. And mom said, the bread means God will always love you. And the wine means God will never leave you. So this was just so simple, like a child's sermon that began to feel like a calling when King was killed. So those, that trauma felt like a calling. And I just didn't think I was good enough, Bree. I just didn't think I was good enough. Like, I would never have been able to go right out of college. I wasn't good enough. Right. I, was, I wasn't clean enough. I wasn't pure enough to step foot in the seminary. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I got to seminary admission, um, my pastor, now friend, Michael Livingston, just listened to me sob. Like, who do I think I am? Why, how can I do this? So it wasn't like a light switch went on and I was good enough or, or I was back in my body. There was a trajectory and a journey in these moments. And the Jonathan moment was a moment. If that sounds ironic, y'all, that the, that the one night stand <laughs> helped, helped, me, helped me get holy. I yeah. found God in myself, as Aki Shaggy would say. And I loved her fiercely. And I just kept letting her loose. And so, you know, I took the risk to go to the seminary. And I got to the seminary and actually did for colored girls as a preaching project and just found a tribe and found a rhythm and found people and mentors and aunties and midwives um, who, you know, I write in the book, Michael said, you were all wrapped up so tight, but all you needed was someone to say, let that shit go. And I was like, yes, <laughs> let it go. Hallelujah. And so I've been becoming, I've been becoming that little girl before Lisa, right? I've been becoming mm. the little girl before the bad touch. I've been becoming the girl who had a weird period and growing pains for like two months. Uh, I've been becoming a person who understands that sexuality is a gift from God and that's, and it feels great. And also it's to be used responsibly, right? Like red wine. So I, I am just so thankful for the bumps and the friction, and I'm going to come back to our birth, our birth analogy. I'm, I'm so, I'm so grateful for the midwifing, for the ripping, the pulling, the tearing, the stretching, the coming out. My therapist um, reminds me that in the pain, in the 
ripping and tearing. And the hard is where the inside is, right? It's in there. And she, she'll say, I write this in the book. Just stay there, Jackie. Don't run. Don't run from it. Stay right there. Stay right there in the pain. That's where the inside is. And then it's going to come right out of your vagina. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the moment that, um, and it's funny because that's actually a passage I would really like for you to read to us in a little bit as we close. But, you know, this podcast was really birthed. I mean, here we are again, birthed from that desire to talk about the ruptures in our life as not being a problem, as unknowing as being a practice that we actually need to embrace, and that those spaces of seeming darkness are oftentimes wombs that are growing something really deep and really profound. And so when we can't see or we don't know what's happening, our first instinct shouldn't be to turn against it, but to turn into it, like Mm. the poet Rilke says, and live the questions. Try to love the questions themselves. And I want to ask you about your own experience of being a teacher, a preacher, and the many experiences of not seeing that you've had at Middle Church and specifically maybe this this most recent difficult moment that happened where felt like insult to injury of an already impossibly challenging year um, when there was this fire that burned most of the building down, this precious space. So what insight did that moment of rupture offer you? I know you write about it, but I wondered if you could share. Middle Church is this beautiful community of revolutionaries, all Races, all ethnicities, all classes, um, genders. And losing the building was just like, it was like a gut punch, right? You got COVID and uh, shut down March March 2020, pivot, learn how to do our conference digitally, worship digitally, programming digitally. Okay, okay, we're doing good. We're working on it. And then the building burns down. And it burns down. No kidding. I was very nice about this for a while while talking about it. It burns down for all the American reasons that we're who we are sometimes, you know. It didn't have to burn down. The neighbor was doing asbestos removal, didn't really spend enough money to do the right electronic blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly, you know, there's a fire. And so it's just, just, the fire is still burning. Right before I talk to you, and as soon as I'm done, I got to go back into the fire, back into insurance, Mm. back into what are we going to do, what are we going to build? Mm-hmm. And here's what I found in the fire also. Mm. I found the power of I don't know. Like, I love the name of this podcast. It's got such a wonderful double entendre. It's like unknowing is unlearning, but also unknowing. Like, I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. Can you raise enough money? I do not know. Will you build on site? I don't know. Will you get a new building? I, do, I don't know. And I'm not supposed to know until I know. I don't know what hybrid worship looks like. We're experimenting, but I don't know. I don't know the path from here. And it is so liberating. To not know. I mean, I just don't. I can't produce it. I can't. Yeah. I can't manufacture it. I just keep saying what my therapist says to me, just to stay in it. It's excruciating, so awkward. It's just so awkward. And it'll be a year in two months. So if you feel like I should know by then, but I'm beginning to say, like, well, let's see. (laughs) I don't know. But it is surrendering to the universe. I'm not kidding. It is so hard because I'm competent and smart and but I really am surrendering and just asking God, the universe, the the powers, just show me at the right time so I can be ready. But I feel free in this liminal space, in a way that stuns me. Mm. It stuns me. 
I got to tell you, I mean, this little metaphor we've got working about the vagina is so funny. <laughs> and it's it so perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. Because I'm sitting here and I'm right. thinking about how, and I've been, I've been sharing some of this with the unknowing community about how when we're fully present, we can move into pleasure as playfulness, which is creativity, which is love, yes. which makes us more fully present, that makes us more able to experience the pleasure of becoming and makes us more playful, more willing to experiment. Like, like you said, you're experimenting. Yeah. You don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, Jackie, what in your perspective, you know, you write this incredible book about fierce love and I had like, you know, 10 different questions I wanted to get into for another time, but everybody will will get your book and enjoy it because um, I want to ask about how you see creativity as being an expression of that fierce love. Like you've already named it in what you just said about not knowing, but how is creativity linked in your mind to that fierce love? How is it essential? Yeah, um, that's such a great question. Um, I've got two different thoughts running at the same time, and so I'm going to try to put them together. One is the way, like, let's, I'm not, I'm not a parent. I'm a grandparent, and I got, I got to get babies in the transaction, which I'll tell you about some other time, but I have these two beautiful grandbabies. And we love them so fiercely. We love them so fiercely that we engage with them in their world of child play, of creativity. Mm-hmm. So, Ophelia, you know, with the Christmas bag on her arm and this landline phone walking around the house pretending like she's going to work and taking a meeting. And she's like, Nana, I have a meeting right now. I'll come back and find you, you know, <laughs> or, or we're singing Moana songs or we're dancing or we're making stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so that, that place, Winnicott is the psychologist that I quote a lot in the book of creativity and play. Mm-hmm. is about the container that we're making. You know, right. I, I, we're making a container. So I want to talk about that. Like that is the womb, back to the womb. The first mm-hmm. play place is that. Children playing with their poops or playing, you know, or whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, but we are we are who we are because we learned how to create and play. Mm-hmm. And what's loving, I think, fiercely loving, is when we engage each other in the place. Brie, I come to your podcast because I respect you and I love you in the world. If I come here with my agenda, I'm not entering in your play space, right? Mm-hmm. Your play space is, is where the juicy is, the, the joyous, the jouissance, right? That I can see what you're doing and go, oh, I got that. I feel that. I feel the double entendre of that. I feel, you know, I'm even putting myself close to the mic like you're close to the mic. That's automatic, mirroring, playing together. That is fierce. If we could think about it. So now... You, you could play with your Jewish neighbor, right? You could play with your Muslim neighbor. You could play with your li- ne- next neighbor. You could play with the black people, white people. You could listen to some, some James Brown and some, you know, some Marvin Gaye instead of like the Beatles. I don't know, right? But there is something about that transitional space we make together because we love each other. And that lets us play and playing lets us create and creativity is love. So that's one answer. Mm. And the other answer is by yourself all by yourself. You're magical. Like if we just loved ourselves, the way you decide to adorn your body, the way you decide to, you know, make eye contact, what you do with your nails, how you, how you move in the world, how you make love is creativity. Whether you learn how to, you know, self-pleasure, all of this stuff is the you. And I just don't want us to think that we don't have it also by ourselves. Like you do have it by yourself. We just have to give ourselves permission to love ourselves fiercely enough to recognize our, our patois, our, our jokes. <laughs> we got jokes. Who you are uniquely, Brie, is magical. And starting there is the way to love yourself fiercely as well. It brings us back full circle to the way you started off in your book, emphasizing none of this works if you can't love yourself. None of it works. And your whole journey through the book takes us on that trajectory. And you even said this earlier, like you were, you're remembering, you're being membered to once more, the wholeness that you belonged to before all the cracks came in and told you otherwise, right? 
So the cracking apart is like bringing you back into that fullness of your own presence and pleasure and play and creativity. And I want to ask you. And that's joy, right? Yes, I was just going to say, it's joy. It's it's like, it's pleasurable activism. It's, It's like a homecoming. It's yearning. It's it's not a should. It's not something, I guess I should do this. It's a want. Like this actually is something I want to do. So I have two requests as we close out the show. The first one is I, I like to close by asking if you have any advice for me that then can go out to the listeners. You know, I'm very much in a place of unknowing in my life right now. It's like a huge kind of creative risk and shift into just doing this show and going back to the arts and doing music again and painting. And I like I have nights, Jackie, where I'm like, <laughs> what the hell were you thinking? You know, like what you were talking about, like, I just don't think I'm good enough. I can't be a past. I'm like, what am I thinking? I'm I can't pull this off. I can't do this thing. And, you know, but here we are. We're every day. Is another You're day. doing it, right? <laughs> we're, we're doing the thing. You're doing but, the thing. Um, do you have any advice for me and through me, our listeners? And then in closing, I'm going to ask you to read that passage that your, your, I almost called her your midwife, that your therapist invited you, inspired in you, that you wrote in your book. And we'll, we'll get to that next. But any advice? I think your insecurity, not as secure in the space, <laughs> is part of the birthing of the space. Mm. I, I can't imagine, Brie, that if, if it just felt all like solid and clear, that there would be as much material from which mm. you to spin out this beauty. So think of the, all of those things, the stuff of all of that is the stuff that will inspire the painting and the stuff that will be the song lyrics and will affect the melody and shape the guests and shape the questions. Like all of it is the weaving of the beauty that is your work to do in the world. I want you to feel so good about that. I don't know, can I? Because it is instrumental in building the next thing. I can literally feel my whole body relaxing into that, you know, that sense of what if it, what if it all belongs? <laughs> what if the, the questions and the insecurities and the, what if it's all part of our courage? Like, what if that's what courage looks like? Not having our shit together. I think it does, love. Yeah. I think it's so important, the work you're doing and the doing it the way you're doing it, because there's also the way you're doing it. Because it is a kind of a testimony of courage, and courage is heart, and when heart is love, and you will encourage, encourage others to step into the unknowing, because you are a coach on the train to the next thing, right? Very much in that with everyone who's yes, listening, exactly, just to exactly, be clear. Exactly, exactly. The unknowing is real. So in closing, um, I couldn't help but feel as I was reading this. And, it, you know, in the copy that you gave me, the, the early copy, Jackie. Tell me the page, Left. It's 88 and 89. Okay. Beginning with the section where you say right where you are. Right. All the way through the end. Could you read that for us as kind of like, you know, like a... It's like the the good Christian in me can't help but like give us a blessing. But like, you know, for the church of unknowing, for those of us who are in this, like, I don't know what the F is next and I don't know what I'm doing. Could you read us these, these incredibly beautiful and inspiring words from your book for us as a blessing? Thank you, Brian. It is a blessing to be with you. I'm so glad to... What an honor to kick it with you in this space. I love it. Your your own beautiful space. So anatomically correct, my therapist was talking to a woman with a vagina. Mm -hmm. But I say, let me translate, Lynn, for all of us, Mm -hmm. those with vaginas and those without. Right where you are in the hurt and sorrow. That's right where the inside is. That's where the answer is. That's where the wisdom is. The transformation is there, the rebirth is there, and you're not alone. Your friend, your lover, your family, your helper, someone from your posse will midwife it with you. The healing will come and you will emerge shaped in the merciful womb of fierce love. 
the pain of birth is excruciating. But someone who loves you knows how to reach in and grab you and hold on to you until you make it through. You'll emerge lighter, less encumbered, ready for new stories, transformed by old ones. I'm part of your posse now. I'll say Bree and I. One of your midwives. I'm here to help you love yourself unconditionally, speak truthfully, travel lightly. I want you to lay down your burdens. Let go of the heaviness so you can give birth to a fierce love warrior. You. Ready. Set. Push. Thank you for midwifing so many of us into a deeper belonging in our own bodies. And the way that you animate that call of ushering in that kind of belonging for everybody in this world as well. Jackie, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you, Brie. It was so good to talk with you. I wish you every good thing. So we're learning how to embrace the ruptures, the tears in our maps as sites of emergence, of places where we fall through and discover new terrain. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking from this conversation. I was really moved when she said, yeah, all spiritual traditions say, don't break each other's hearts. Don't break someone else's heart. Like to live with that level of care and concern and empathy, but she (laughs) takes it up a notch and says, don't break your own heart. It reminds me of Glennon Doyle's work where she says, I will never not ever abandon myself again. I don't want to abandon myself anymore. (laughs) And I don't want to break my own heart. I've done that plenty over the years. I don't know about you. (laughs) But it reminds me of what Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams said in, in her episode where she talked about If you're really honest, all of the heartbreaks of your life come down to some binary choice that you were either forced into or that you forced yourself into. So I want to belong beyond those binary categories. And as Reverend Jackie said, I want to belong fiercely to myself, love myself deeply, and in that homecoming of fullness, invite other people to come home too. Final piece of True North wisdom I'm taking with me Just that midwife blessing at the end there was so powerful. I love it so much. I loved it even more to hear it in her voice. But this place, right where you are, like exactly where we are, as we are, shit show and everything, is exactly where we need to be. Like we have everything we need. Like there is no arrival point. Maybe we can stop trying to get there and be here in the midst of the mess because it's only in the middle that anything actually gets created. It's in the middle of it all that the magic reveals itself, the magic potential of what we can do with all of this. And again, I think this is why I really wanted to do this show, is to explore that creative path of possibility. Not once you get your shit together, but right now when you don't have it together at all, when you don't know what's next, when you're not sure how you're going to pay the next bill, when you're pretty sure you are insane for deciding to do a podcast and music and think that somehow this was going to be that forward. Like when I've been ending each show and saying, try to love the questions themselves because I'm trying right along with you, I mean it. Like we are really in this together, right here in the middle of it all. I hope that Reverend Jackie Lewis's words can stay with you as you continue your own creative and courageous journey. And between now and season two of Unknowing, I hope that you can come back to these episodes and listen and that they serve as some form of inspiration, support, maybe just letting you know that you're not crazy or alone. And if any of these conversations of season one have been meaningful to you, I want to invite you to consider becoming a patron or giving a tax-deductible donation to Unknowing. You can find out more by visiting unknowing.org. We've already started production on season two. I'm talking to some amazing artists, oh my God, and thinkers and authors, and I cannot wait to share them with you. But we really need your help to be able to make it happen. So please consider donating to Unknowing for your year-end giving. Again, it's tax-deductible, and you can find out more at unknowing.org. All right. That's it for today's episode and for season one of Unknowing. 
As I always like to do, I'm going to close by quoting Rilke, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. And know that I'll be trying right alongside you as I pivot now to some of my other creative expressions, focus on music for a few months, and continue recording season two of Unknowing, which will hopefully be out February of 2022. I'll catch you then. <laughs>